We appreciate uh, you all being here today. Um, we're, um, we've been scrambling a little bit this last week. Um, my, um, just my personal story here, we have a number of them from members of our congregation. We want to extend our, our sympathies to the Silverberg upon Mark's brother passing away. And um, we also, uh, my mother-in-law, Solveig's mother, is 92, and she has uh, right now been transferred to hospice, and Solveig is up in Minnesota um, to be with her before she passes away. And we expect that that will happen probably any time soon this week. And so I, I will um, maybe be uh, gone next Sunday. I'm not exactly sure, but um, we'll, have to, we'll have to see. Um, I do want to thank, uh, yesterday um, I went and uh, called on the gardener, uh, Mary Alice Gardner. Um, her son, their, uh, the gardener's uh, son-in-law was also diagnosed with um, um, cancer, with pancreatic cancer. Um, it's not going to be redeemed. I, I was just having a conversation with uh, Rachel Fry here this morning. Just seems as though there are a lot of people that have contracted cancer. And maybe it's that we're all getting older um, and that this is the more natural breakdown of our bodies. But as a kid, I just I don't remember that many people having had cancer. And I don't know if it's... Uh, you think it's the water, or, or is it the meat, or what is it that we're in? Coffee? <laughs> coffee. Well, that makes everybody drinking coffee here feel really good about themselves. Um, but when I was calling upon um, uh, Mary Alice and Ralph, um, Mary Alice immediately made reference to this article that was in the Wall Street Journal called The Catholic World Fades Over a Lifetime. How many of you have did, saw that article in the Wall Street Journal? I see we have some you know, intense readers of the Wall Street Journal here. Um, I caught this and I just started to read it and I thought it was... One thing I like about the Wall Street Journal is that they will actually, uh, in the editorial section, they will literally let people write their Christian faith. Um, I'd like to see it in the Indianapolis Star on, on, uh, on Easter morning, what we'll have is a, a picture of some race or some uh, secular thing that has absolutely nothing to do with Easter, and that's the feature of the star. I wrote to them once, and um, they, they, their response was something like, well, on the fourth page in, we had a picture of the Pope uh, speaking to people from the Vatican. Isn't that what Easter is all about? Well, yes. This is in the Wall Street Journal? Yeah, uh, I think it was uh, maybe Thursday or Friday, something like that. Um, I just want to, I'm going to read it. I, I hope you don't mind. Is that okay? If it's not, tough. Um, he writes, early last month I attended my Uncle Joe's funeral mass at the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the same Morristown, New Jersey Catholic Church in which he had been baptized 89 years earlier. In an ancient tradition meant to recall baptism, his casket was covered with white, a white linen pall, blessed with holy water by a priest, and positioned in the sanctuary before the paschal candle. Decorated with the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the Alpha and the Omega, 
The candle denotes our fundamental belief in the resurrection of the body made possible by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And this is, that's pretty bold stuff, you know, for, for the secular media. The mourners that day were few. Uncle Joel, uh, Joe had simply outlived a lot of people. Of the 50 or so friends and family assembled to pray for the repose of his body, only a handful seemed familiar with the liturgy. A regular Sunday mass goer couldn't help but notice almost no one knew what to say and when to say it or what to do or when to do it. This wasn't entirely their fault. In 2011, the Catholic Church issued a new English translation of the Roman Missal, the text and rubrics of the Mass that have been in use since 1969. But most of the baptized Catholics standing mute in their pews in, at Uncle Joe's funeral hadn't been regular churchgoers since well before the new translation came out. It's a deep problem. Only 22% of American Catholics attend weekly Mass, according to Georgetown University's Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate. One thing that distinguishes Catholicism from other Christian denominations is the doctrine of transubstantiation. Yet in a 2010 Pew survey, 45% of Catholics said they weren't familiar with church teachings that the consecrated bread and wine used during communion are not mere symbols of Christ's body and blood, but the real thing. In other words, they don't believe in the real presence. Catholics aren't the only ones dealing with religious illiteracy. Pew found that 53% of American Protestants couldn't identify Martin Luther as the man who inspired the Reformation. Oddly, Jews, atheists, and Mormons were more familiar with Luther. When I, um, when I first got out to, to Utah, um, this kind of handsome young guy drove up on a motorcycle with a kid in the back, and, and uh, he said, um, welcome to the neighborhood. And we started to talk, and I told him what I was there. I was going to be a Lutheran pastor. And he said to me, what synod? I said, nobody asked that question but Missouri Synod Lutherans. <laughs> and um, and uh, but he said, no, he had been a Mormon missionary. And uh, I said, oh, well, when you're knocking on doors to door, you find out, um, I guess, what differences are between people's denominations. So I said, so you're familiar with the Missouri Synod? He said, oh, yes. He said, uh, when we went uh, on my mission, he said, I found out that they were the Lutherans who knew why they were Lutherans. And I thought that was a pretty good statement, but I think it's beginning to lose its punch. At least the Mormons know who Martin Luther was. Fewer than three in ten white evangelicals correctly identified Protestantism as a faith that believes in the doctrine of sola fide, or justification by faith alone. 30% of so-called evangelicals, these are your big box church folk, 30% can't, don't understand what justification by faith means. I think this is, a, this, this is what we're, you know, on Sunday morning I'll get up and I'll say, we need to get back to the Bible. We're going to have to fight against our culture. We're going to have to get back to it. We're going to have to get into the scriptures. We're going to have to learn our doctrine. 
And the doors open up and they continue to flow out. I, I sometimes, you know, I guess, I guess maybe if I started cutting myself or something that people might feel a little bit more excited. At Uncle Joe's service, the contrast between the modern church and the one into which he was received in 1927 was most notable, uh, and noticeable during the prayer of the faithful, the litany of petitions Catholics offer with the request, Lord, hear our prayer. It is traditional during the funeral mass to pray for dead relatives of the deceased. Among the names read were those of my paternal grandparents, Clara and Joe Hennessy. I couldn't help but think how terribly sad they would be to know how few of their descendants had kept the faith. Now, praying for the dead, I think we don't do that, um, but you know that too, don't you? I hope so. <laughs> Nestled into a residential neighborhood of two- and three-story wood-frame houses, Assumption Church exemplifies a 20th-century Catholic world that has mostly gone missing. I, too, was baptized beneath Assumption's high-vaulted ceilings and the rich hues of its stained-glass windows. So were my sister and brothers, my father, my grandmother, and my great-grandfather, John T. Murphy. My mother's funeral was held there in 2010. Originally built in 1847 to serve Morristown's growing population of Irish and Italian immigrants, the church has been rebuilt and renovated several times. A fire nearly destroyed the building in 1985. Somehow, Assumption was spared the ugly makeovers that have robbed many Catholic churches of their mystery and beauty. It remains a Gothic sanctuary, an oasis from the bustling modernity of the outside world. The Polish priest who said Uncle Joel's funeral, funeral mass seemed all too familiar with the problem of Catholics who don't quite remember what to say or do. He politely prompted the appropriate responses from the congregation at the appropriate time. You can tell that whenever, I guess, uh, the pastor is giving directions in the liturgy, he's either anticipating that the people don't know or maybe that even the visitors don't know. But when the moment came, he gently reminded everyone that Holy Communion in the Catholic Church is reserved for those who are, quote, properly disposed, unquote, to receive it. That is, Catholics who are not conscious of grave sin and who have fasted for one hour. Now, this is what we would call close communion. Now, we keep getting beat up by all kinds of people, oftentimes including our own members, for the fact that we expect people to actually share our common beliefs about the Lord's Supper, you know, like the real presence, like why we need it, um, and so on. And uh, here he's saying, by George, the Catholic Church does too. That the Roman Catholic Church has a practice what we would call closed communion. They use this word differently, properly disposed. Not even that you are Catholic, but that you have been properly prepared to receive it. Now, I think we have probably dropped our standards a little bit, but I think they have too. But listen to this, and here comes the clincher. Um, quote, if you are Catholic and capable of receiving communion, he said, please step forward at this time. 
Nearly everyone did. The clincher. They don't know. They don't care. They're going to come whether you tell them that they're not worthy or not. In other words, this is what's happened. Uh, there, there's, there, there, there's, I guess you might even say it sometimes, no respect for the boundaries. But it means that I, you could sit there and tell people that, they're, that, they're, that the Lord's Supper requires a certain standard for a person to properly be receiving it or to come forward and receive it. And they'll come anyway. They'll come anyway. This is the world that we're living in now. And it's, it's, I, I mean, everything that you're reading is telling you it's getting worse. And the so-called dinosaurs of, of ancient times that used to be the people that never would think about where they would be going on Sunday morning, that they would always be getting up and going to church and being there every single Sunday. I mean, I've told you this a, a thousand times that nobody can give me an excuse that trumps uh, what it is that I saw in my father. My dad walked with crutches. He had had polio. He was paralyzed uh, from the chest down. He had had some partial movement in his legs, but he had braces. My dad never missed a single worship service. And even on vacation, we had to go in our shorts to some church that was somewhere out in South Dakota walking through grasshoppers in order to be able to get to church because he wanted to make sure we went to church. That generation is moving down the conveyor belt and we've got a new world in which it is believed that all this stuff is just foo-foo. That the real presence of Christ is not a big deal. And, and so, boy, yeah, here we got uh, all of 25 minutes for Bible class here, but um, I, I just, I think, I think we're going to have to we're going to have to suck it up. We're going to have to buck up. We're going to have to try to convince all of our fellow Christians that we've got to really think twice about whether or not we're going to have a half-hearted faith. What did it say in the book of Revelation? I would rather have you hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. We don't want to have a church that's lukewarm. So, um, I'd like to begin today by um, saying a prayer. Uh, I had asked my confirmands to do an interpretation of the Lord's Prayer, the piece of petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And um, today, I'm going to share with you a little bit of Anna Fry's interpretation. Should we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for making me your child in faith through baptism in the Holy Spirit. Please keep the Holy Spirit within my heart for the rest of my earthly days until I meet you in heaven. Lord my Father, thank you for granting me your holy name. Please keep me to it and make me keep it holy and spread it to others in desperate need for it. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for granting me the Holy Spirit in baptism and helping me to learn and understand your word. 
Please help me to grow in my faith and use your word to guide me until I meet you in heaven for eternity. Amen. That's how it is that a, um, a young girl can say her prayers. I think, thank you, Rise. Yeah, thank you. Well, we even happen to have old Anna with us here today, too. <laughs> thank you, Anna. All right. Um, we're on to our study here of Christians in the so-called two vocations. We talked pretty much about uh, wives and hu husbands, wives, parents. We talked about the separation of the two kingdoms. Um, and then we, I think we ended with, uh, with uh, the text for children here. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. All right, well, let's go to the back side of that handout. I imagine that you, are there enough of them, or, okay. Um, there might be some back there. Is that, are those the handouts? Okay. Okay, um, why don't we uh, read together what our catechism says about male and female servants, hired men and laborers. I, if you're not, um, if you don't have one, we'll just read it for you and open up your ears and it'll be good enough. Together, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Okay, how many of you like your jobs. What job do you have? <laughs> You're the master of the house. You have a servant. Look at who sees. Here he is, right here, serving you. Of course, you like your job, being in charge. Um, the um, yeah. The uh, uh, I was talking to this uh, this pastor, Minka Gunther's uh, pastor who was down in New Mexico, and he was telling me that he had been a pastor up in Michigan, and um, that almost all of his parishioners who, he said, he said that they were working uh, in a lot of the um, automobile factories in Michigan, and uh, what they would do is they would go up, and I guess there's some region of lakes up there that they would all go up and get a little cabin, and their weekends would be spent at those little cabins. He said, um, you know, of course, he was in a church that, where they would then go to church at his church, which is in that area, and he said, every single one of them hated their job. They were on a production assembly line. They were there to just 
get their paycheck and survive until the weekend. And then it was a matter of just simply trying to be able to forget until the, day, the day, Monday came and they packed up their lunches and they went to work on the assembly line. Very, very rote and repetitious uh, job. Um, it's pretty difficult to be able to take a, a commandment like this or take this exhortation to say that we should actually desire to serve our employer and the well-being of our employer. And to do so, to, when we do so, we do so actually pleasing God. That this is, again, we talk about good works. Is it a good work for us to go to our secular jobs and to do a good job? And this is what Luther is driving at. It is. Um, there, there, you know, a lot of times I think people think that you have to almost be doing something churchly in order to be doing a good work. That in other words, unless you're going over to the church on Wednesdays for Bible study, unless you're volunteering for such and such at the church, that you're, that's where good works are being done. But those things that we do for the six days out of the week, that is something that is for us, or that's our world outside of the church. Not so. Every single day that we go to our jobs, how we go about doing what it is that our jobs to call upon us to do, to do it with the right spirit, to do it with the right attitude, to do so joyfully and to in service to our employer, this is something that actually is as good of a work as any good work. It, it's, it's a simple thing, but oftentimes overlooked because most people divide their life between doing churchly things and secular things. And that's not the case. So ask yourself, uh, when you go to your job uh, Monday morning, and when I hear you groaning all the way um, down the interstate uh, as you're going to your jobs, and you say, why do I have to go to work today? Pull out Luther's Catechism and read it right there. Okay, masters and mistresses, these are more ancient times. Ye masters, do the same thing unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Um, if you were the master of a house, you know, if you think about how these people operated in those days, you could have a full family, but it wasn't exactly like you went down to a local marsh in order to be able to get the meal for that evening. You had to go out and you had to kill the stupid chicken. You had to pluck the feathers. You had to then prepare that chicken. And there, weren't, there was no such thing as, as uh, refrigeration, right? And so everything required an entire division of labor all the way down to the guy who probably was taking out the pea pot from the night before. And they didn't have bathrooms. Remember that. You know what pea pots are, don't you? Okay, I just wanted to make sure this, so that they, um, those chamber pots, they used to call them chamber pots. Well, when you were on the bottom of the totem pole, that's the job that you got. And to say that by doing it joyfully, that you were pleasing God, that may have been a tough one. But that order of master all the way on down oftentimes meant an order of authority, and a lot of times people were very upset and angry with the people who were over them because sometimes people abuse their authority, don't they? And Luther was saying they also need to recognize that they have a master in heaven, and the way that they treat those people who are under them is also extremely important. 
So there are two, good works, being a good leader, a good uh, master, if you will. For young persons in general, you want to read it with me? Likewise, ye younger, submit yourself unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Um, yeah, the, um, first of all, that fourth commandment, remember how, I don't know how many of you remember being told that you had to bow down before the hoary head. Do you know what the hoary head is? I'm just looking at a hoary one there, and there's another hoary one, and there's a, a hoarfrost was white, right? A hoary head was a person who had white hair. Now, I think higher levels of dignity should be given to people without hair, but <laughs> that's just me. Um, we are to, to whenever, uh, I, I wrote to, um, there's a, a lady up in Minnesota uh, who appeared on Facebook, and it turned out that she would be my cousin's daughter. She's married to a pastor. And so you know how this happens on Facebook. Usually it's Hans that paves the way for me. And, uh, and so I said, are you Rachel's daughter? And she wrote back, yeah, I'm Rachel's daughter. And then she said, I remember going out to uh, Colorado. And she said, we stopped in at your mother and your father's house out in Colorado. And this is when she was a young girl. And she said, your sister was the most respectful little girl I'd ever met in my life. And I felt ashamed of myself after that and tried to improve my behavior. I said, what, sister? <laughs> What's this? Um, but it stuck with her. And, um, and I think when we show respect for those, it's such a blessed thing to see children who are respectful towards their elders. Now, um, Ralph told me this last week that in Iceland that children are expected to become servants to the elderly, right? And, um, and I think that they, you know, Iceland probably has, along with Norway, they have some of the longest live people in the world. And I don't know if it's from, they say partially from eating fish, uh, more so than meat, but, but they also were saying that... Um, that when the elderly are highly respected and cared for, the more that they are honored, the longer that they live. And especially when the task is given by younger children. What's happening today? We're putting them off into, my mother's in one, they're putting them off into communities where they're with people like them but they're not necessarily with the children, the little children. Sun City, Utah, uh, Sun City, Arizona. Um, my supervising pastor down there when I was doing my vicarage, his wife refused to live in a retirement community. I, I said, well, why is that? I mean, Sun City was where everything was happening. She said, because I want to be near the children. Well, when children show respect for those who are in authority, Luther says this is also the good work. But then he turns around and he says, we're to be subject to one another. 
We're to show that same kind of respect towards each other. Maybe when children are taught to respect these little grandparents and grandfathers and these older people, maybe they also are being taught the humility to care for each other. I think so. I think there's a relationship. Well, that's a, that is an obligation. All right, for widows. She that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. The, uh, the apostle was uh, talking about the enrollment of widows. You know, the, in, the, in, the ancient, in the ancient world, they had no Medicare. They had no Social Security. They didn't have retirement programs and IRAs. Your husband died if you did not have children to care for you. It was tough luck. You were going to be out there begging on the streets. And so in the Christian church, what they would do is they would, when, the, when widows, um, when one became a widow, if you were elderly and if you were a person who had actually been engaged in Christian charitable works, they would enroll you, which meant that the church had the obligation to financially support you and care for you if you had nobody else to do it. If you did, it was their obligation, and that was told to the Christians that it was their obligation to care for these elderly people. However, sometimes there were younger widows who would lose their husbands, and then they would want to be enrolled. And the apostle would say, no, they shouldn't be. They should get married again. And then devote themselves, of course, to the... They were capable of being able to make an income and whatever else not. But he says they should not be living in pleasure, but they should indeed be engaged in continual supplication. Remember the story of Anna who was in the tabernacle, in the temple, when Jesus is there, she comes and she speaks to, about, to everybody about this little child that has been born. She was a, had been a widow and she had lived in the temple uh, and she was up until the age of 84 and she was still there in the temple waiting for the Messiah to come. Well, for all in common, should we just say that together? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Herein are comprehended all the commandments, Romans 13, 8, and so on, and persevere in prayer for all men. So we love our neighbor as ourselves. All right, so with those kinds of things in mind, let's uh, begin to start looking at some of these texts. First um, John chapter 2, verse 2. You want to take a look there? Since everybody is, is going there, I've got them printed out, but I should probably... Um, okay. Chapter 2, verse 2. Why are we here? Okay. I'll read verse 1, and then you join in in verse 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The, 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 the very fact that we exist, here we let me do this here. When he got there, the markers weren't there. Um, okay, 
um, if you think of a, of a wheel, uh, the hub of a wheel, you, you have to always, I'm, even in corporations they do this nowadays, I think everybody here works for a company that probably has to have some kind of core values or some sort of a purpose statement, right? You know, and they oftentimes are kind of generalistic. But why are we here? Because Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That if we are not here, that atoning blood of Christ is not going to be here for the world in which we live. Now you think of all the things for which people will say, I want to come to church. I want to become a member of a church. Why do you want to be a member of a church? Because it's a community where people are nice. It's a place where we go where we, it's familiar to us. It's a place where we go and we hear even uh, the Bible preached or discussed. Um, by the way, um, they, um, you know how um, there was an article that was just out on why, why people, what, what makes people choose a church? And everybody thought that it was going to be the music because the evangelical big box churches do nothing but practically play music. And what did they say was the number one thing that draws people to a congregation? The people, you might say. Some people say the people, how friendly they were, maybe. Anything else? Number one thing? Number one thing was preaching. Number one thing. Now, nobody said sacraments. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The atoning blood of Christ is also in the waters of baptism. We preach about it, but there you receive it quite tangibly and literally. The body and the blood of Christ there in the atoning side. We are here for the purpose of presenting word and sacrament to the world in which we wash away people's sins. That's why we're here. And if you come to church on Sunday morning and you do not walk away with your hearts cleansed with forgiveness, then we, I, have failed. And there are many times in which I get, well, for years and years and years and years and years, I have to tell you that the, that the point of my greatest depression, if you want to call it that, is after church. Because I'm afraid that I did not properly present the gospel. And it's always imperfect. It's always imperfect. But that's why we're here. And if I mess up, hopefully the liturgy will make up for it. That's right. All right. Let's uh, look a little bit further. That same 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. Chapter 3, verse 23. Read it together. And this is his command to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He has commanded us. How, how, does, um, how do we 
love each other. Um, what does that mean? To love each other. It sounds good, doesn't it? I love Bill and Ann. Kind of. <laughs> Sometimes. I, I used to. Um, but how, how what, is, what does it mean to love each other? I mean, what I know, it, it, you know, sometimes the, the most common words are the words that are the most difficult to understand, to, under, to put into application. Now, Bob, you love your mother-in-law, don't you? Um, how do you show it? How does she know it? Do you ever feel like you're being put on the spot? <laughs> <laughs> You're, you're there for her whenever she has needs, right? You carry her sorrows. You rejoice with her. You forgive her. I mean, for all those years that you were an unworthy son-in-law, you, re, you remember how forgiving that you were of all that? Yeah. <laughs> and, and she obviously loves you because she gave you her daughter. And... Um, even though you didn't deserve it. Uh, <laughs> right caught in the middle here, aren't you? <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, but think about how, what that means for us in our congregation. And to think of, not the people necessarily who are here. I, we all have a very wonderful relationship with each other. But there are others too. And they need to be able to know and feel that love, that care, that concern, those things that go with it. And this is something, faith is, to write on the board here, Faith is vertical. This is what we believe. Love is horizontal. It is the relationships that we now are taking what we believe, the love which God has given to us, and we now do the same with each other. So if he forgives us, we forgive each other. If he's the one who cares for us, we care for each other. If he's the one who, who shares our sorrows, like it says in Isaiah, he bore our sins and carried our sorrows and so on, we should bear the sins of others, weaknesses of others, and carry their sorrows too. So, all right, well, I think uh, we have uh, kind of come to an end here, and by the grace of God, um, I'll be here next Sunday, hopefully uh, here, and if not, um, Pastor Ullman has promised that he will preach the best sermon that you've ever heard in your life which is the same sermon that he uses any time that um, a pastor is out of town. <laughs> okay. Well, we want to we thank Anna for our prayers. Beautiful, wonderful prayers. Anna, keep it up, okay? We appreciate that. All right, let's conclude with a prayer. Dear Lord and Savior, we do pray and ask you, that as our Father in heaven, that you would enable us to be able to grow in understanding how we please you and how it is that we take our life in service to you. We, we pray that every day that we live our lives and we work in our regular jobs, that we would please you there. We pray that you would, we would please you in our relationships with our spouses, in our relationships with our children, in our relationships with our parents. We pray that we might do all these good works to serve you 
and to know and understand that they are pleasing in your sight because of our faith in Jesus Christ. But help us also to remember our relationship with each other in this congregation that we might grow in our love and our attention and our devotion to each other. And we ask this as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen.